Well, good morning, church. I hope you've had a great Christmas. We, we have in our home. Um, I'm just going to share a couple things with you. Um, first of all, if you're new here to um, Salem, uh, I'm Pastor Rick Kleiner. I'm the pastor of education and discipleship, and I like fruitcake. Just going to say it. I do. All right. I like fruitcake. I'm one of those weird guys that like it. I like it because you can eat part of it this year, save it for next year. Uh, it keeps well. It has a shelf life of about 106 years. I think, and it's just really good. I enjoy it. Um, some things um, about Christmas are kind of, some things mark the Christmas season for me. I'm, I'm a big Christmas nerd. I love the fact that I get to preach in front of a Christmas tree today. I enjoy the lights. Um, matter of fact, if we could keep that up all year, I'd be okay with it, but some people might have a problem. Some other things mark, I, I think fruit, fruitcake marks the Christmas holiday season. Uh, you don't see these things in the stores until Christmas. Um, a couple of things. We tried to do something this year that was all me. Uh, I made the dumb decision on this one, but Jill in her loving, supportive, um, I'm going to use the word wifehood, just went on and said, you can have this, Rick. I'm going to let you do this because I'm the holiday cooker in our family. Um, I'm not a, I can cook every day, but for me, it's like I love the big holidays, so I love to cook the turkey for Thanksgiving and prepare all that. But this year for Christmas, I wanted to do something new. I was like, let me, let me up the game. Let me try something. Because everybody always talks about the Christmas goose, right? Has you ever had goose at Christmas or any time? Yeah, Jill, thank you, sweetheart. Uh, and Eli didn't raise his hand. He's like, I'm, I didn't touch that junk. Um, so, so listen, I, I just said, this is the year I'm going to do it. I'm going I'm to cook the Christmas goose and figgy pudding. That was my plan. That was my plan. Because I'm tired of that, that one song where the people aren't going to leave till they get it. I'm going to go ahead and give it to them early and say, go, just leave. All right, and so, so I decided we went, um, first of all, buying a goose in this city I didn't know was that difficult. Um, it's really funny when you go to like the meat department at a restaurant, you go, hey, or at a, at a grocery store and say, hey, can, do you have goose? And he's like, what? I'm like, like, do you have goose? Huh? And I'm like, the kids look at me like, daddy, I don't understand what he's thinking. I'm like, I, I don't get it either. Geese, do you sell geese? Geesen, do you have those? I mean, I need one of the non-turkey birds. I need one of those. And so uh, got, got a goose there, took it home, roasted it, did, did everything, followed the recipe. Didn't like it. Just going to throw it out there. Uh, didn't like it. Not a lot of meat on a goose. I guess that's why Bob Cratchit ate it, because um, he was kind of poor. And I, I was just not what I was enjoying. I wasn't looking forward to it. Some people in my family like, this is great. So either they, they loved it or they lied to me, but I guess that's what Christmas is all about. And, uh, but for me, the winner was the figgy pudding. All right, if you've, have you ever had figgy pudding? It was good stuff, all right? You put, put enough whipped cream on something and it tastes great. Should have probably done that to the goose, um, but, but it was really good. So, so that was something. The reason why I did it was because it marked um, the Christmas season, you know, doing a goose and, and the figgy pudding. There's certain things that, that mark these things. Um, and so what I want to talk to you today is a little bit about that idea of a mark. Now, I'm borrowing the title of this book from the book called The Mark of the Christian by Francis Schaeffer. Has anybody ever heard of this book or read this book? If you haven't read The Mark of a Christian, I, I would ask you to just do it. Go ahead and spend some of that Amazon money today. Go ahead and do it right now. Nobody's watching. Order it. It's a good book to get. It's, it's a quick read. You're like, well, I don't like to do a lot of reading. 68 pages, all right? That's sometimes, that's a Facebook scroll. You can do 68 pages, a great book, because what it does is it, it talks about what the mark of a true Christian is. What is it that defines a Christian? Now, what I want to do is read for you the very first quote, kind of give you a trailer, whet your appetite for it, and then we'll kind of build on this idea today. In his book, he says this, 
through the centuries, men have displayed many different symbols to show that they're Christians. They've worn marks in the lapels on their coats. They've hung chains about their necks, even had special haircuts. Anybody grow up in Christian school? You, you remember? The, I, I used to go to Woodland uh, Christian School, and there was a barbershop just down the street from the school, and I would go in, and I could go in and go say, give me the Woodland, and they knew what that meant. They just cut all the hair off, and, and they knew that. And so anyway, um, they, they even had special haircuts. Of course, there's nothing wrong with any of this, nothing wrong with those things. If one feels it is his calling, but there's much better sign, a mark that has not been thought up just as a matter of expediency for use on some special occasion or in some specific era. It is a universal mark that is to last through all the ages of the church till Jesus comes back. And then he asks the question, what is this mark? Now, on the final night that Jesus had with his disciples before his crucifixion, he sat down with them, talking to them in depth about what this mark was going to be. You see, according to Jesus, this mark would not be a symbol to be worn or plastered on a wall, nor would it be something that's easily mimicked or faked in order to fool others. This mark would be so opposite of any normal human activity that it would set the genuine believer apart not only from the unsaved world, but from those who would later claim faith in Christ without really any resolve to follow Jesus. You see, this mark is so distinguishing and such a distinguishing feature of the true follower of Christ that I want to spend most, if not all, of our time on that today. So like Schaefer before us, we're going to ask the question, what is this mark? And as we go to that, we're going to look to it. Now, before we do that, uh, Pastor Kivett read for us some portions of John 15, but really the overall context of what Jesus is talking about in John 15 starts in John 13. Now, I want to turn your attention to that. I'm going to read that for you before we get into anything else. In John 13, verse 31, Jesus says this, when he had gone out, leaving the, the Last Supper, Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him at once. Children, I am with you a little while longer. You will look for me. And just as I told the Jews, where am I going? You cannot come. So now I tell you, I give you a new command. Love one another, just as I have loved you. You must also love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. So, spoilers out. Jesus tells us the outset of this sermon that the defining characteristic, the mark of the Christian, is love for one another. And that this love is going to prove to the world that they, these disciples, belong to Jesus. Now, if our love for one another proves that we are his disciples, this love also proves his existence and his identity. So here it is. When we love in the, Jesus, in the way Jesus desires for us to love, it becomes an apologetic love. You're like, well, what, do you, what do you mean by that? I'm not talking about saying you're sorry. The word apologetic has to do with the word defending. So if you've ever had a class on apologetics, it's about how to defend your faith, how to prove to the world that you're a believer in Jesus, or how to prove to the world 
that Jesus is real. So, so get this. Jesus says right away that the love you're going to have for people, or he wants us to have for one another, is it proves Jesus is real. You get that? So if, if that's true, if the love we have for one another proves that Jesus is real, then the opposite must be true as well. When we don't love as Jesus loved, it's a detriment to the gospel we proclaim. You see that? So this love we're going to talk about today is this apologetic love. So we're commanded to love. Easy sermon, but we're not done yet. We just got started. How? How do we do this? How do we love in the way that Jesus loves? With that, we're going to turn to John 15. Now, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 17. And if you're able, would you stand as we read God's Word together and get started this morning? We're going to read verses 1 through 17, John 15. He says, I'm the vine. And my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word I spoke to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither, neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine. You're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, He is it that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown to the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I've loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends. For all that I've heard from my Father, I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Will you pray with me this morning? Father, we now turn our attention to your text. This is your word revealed through your servant, John. And now we have the task of taking what you've said through John from the words of Jesus to his disciples and and seeing what you want to say to us. So God, I pray you open our eyes. We, We may have heard this text hundreds of times and we already think we know what it means. God, I pray that you would remove any preconceived notions that would keep us from understanding the truth of this text. God, I pray that you'd go beyond any speech issues I may have, the, the speed of my voice or the improper pronunciations, and, and Lord, may your word be clearly spoken. May you teach us through your spirit today, through your word. God, I pray that you go beyond any of my opinions. Let the opinions that come out of me just be forgotten if they're against your word, but let your word be what's remembered. May it make us more like your son Jesus so that we can love and prove to be his disciples. We pray this all in his great name, amen. You may be seated. Now for the rest of our time today, I would like to go line by line 
through John 15, 1 through 17. Now, we, we'll look at chunks here and there, but I want to go through this passage and see exactly what kind of love it is that Jesus is speaking about. Now, it's my prayer that at the end, we're going to see His love for what it truly is and this love that we're supposed to have for one another. And let that focus all of our energy here in 2019. We're at the end of a year, the beginning of a new one. We're, we're, we're watching television as all the greatest hits. What, the greatest moments of 2018. If you're listening to the radio, it's the best songs of 2018. We're at a place now where we're looking forward, we're looking back on what happened, and we're looking forward to the future. It's my prayer that we'll take the love that Jesus commands all of us to have and let that just become a part of our DNA in 2019. All right, so let's look at the first passage here, the first line. He says, I'm the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Now, you know this already, but in the Old Testament, the vine is frequently used as a symbol of Israel. He does this all the time in the Old Testament, especially through the prophets, specifically Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Isaiah. Now, the symbol when used, now this is the important part, whenever it's used in the Old Testament, it's always a symbol of how the vine is lacking in some way. It's never in a positive way. It's never, Israel, you're such a fruitful vine, everything's good. It's always, hey, you know what, I planted a vine and you're not growing fruit. What's going on? It's always used when the vine or when, when the nation is lacking. Now here, Jesus says very specifically, I'm the true vine. I'm the true vine. Why does he use the word true? He's building on what they would have understood from the Old Testament, where the vine that was lacking in the Old Testament, there's nothing lacking in me, he says. I'm the true vine. Okay? Now, the symbol of the vine is always used in the Old Testament as a sign of degeneration. Something is wearing down. You see, Isaiah 5, 1 through 7 describes a vineyard that has run wild and overgrown. Jeremiah 2, 21 complains that Judah had turned into a degenerate and foreign vine. Now, I have this quote here from William Barclay. He says this, when Jesus calls himself the true vine, it's as if Jesus said, you think that because you belong to the nation of Israel, you're a branch of the true vine of God? But the nation is a degenerative vine, as all your prophets saw. It is I who am the true vine, real, genuine vine. The fact that you're Jews, Jesus talked to them, will not save you. The only thing that will save you is to have an intimate, living fellowship with me. For I'm the vine of God, and you must be branches joined to me. You see, here's what Jesus is saying to them. He says, look, don't, don't rest on the fact that you belong to the nation of Israel, because according to the Bible, according to the Old Testament, they began to have this idea that because they were Jewish people, they were okay. You see, they had this idea, look at it, between the Old and the New Testaments, Jewish religion had morphed into this view that is, I'm a Jewish person, I'm a child of Abraham, I'm good, everybody else, unsavable. But in Luke 3.8, he says this. Take a look at what Jesus says in Luke 3.8. John the Baptist warns the crowds coming to him to listen to him. He says this, Therefore, talking to the people, produce fruit consistent with repentance. Have a heart change. And don't start saying to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. We're good. For I tell you that God is able to raise up children for Abraham from these stones. He says, see, John the Baptist right away says that's, that's not the way. Your, your national heritage doesn't bring you salvation. Later on in John 8, 31, Jesus tells the crowds that were looking for him, if you continue in my word, you really are my disciples. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. 
And here's they, they respond. We're descendants of Abraham. They've answered him. We've never been enslaved to anyone. How can you say you'll become free? You see, they even had it in their minds that because they were of the children of Abraham, they're good, they're fine, everything's good, their nationality, they're okay. And then Jesus speaks of that. You see, the Jews in their time saw their status as Abraham's descendants, heirs of that covenant God made with them in Genesis 15 as all they needed for a right standing with God. But Jesus is going to change all that. You see, in the Old Testament also, keep in mind that in ancient Judaism, the, the, the sign of the covenant that you were okay, you were a part of Israel, was the act of circumcision. But in Jeremiah 4.4, it says this. It should be on the next slide here. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, men of Judah and residents of Jerusalem. My wrath will break out like fire. Later in the New Testament, Romans, uh, Paul says this. A person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is of the heart. By the heart, not the letter, that man's praise is not from men, but from God. You see, therefore, Jesus here is utilizing this Old Testament concept of Israel being a vine to show his disciples and us today what a true, genuine relationship with God looks like. It's not by anything we do. It's about being a part of the vine. Now, let's look at this next line here. He says, every branch that is in me or that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Now, I want to kind of pull over here just a little bit and talk about this because this verse has been taken, in, in my opinion, some, some com- confusion there. Now, it, we understand here that it's the mark of the Christian to bear some fruit. He says it right there. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. So you're going to bear fruit. Now, some interpret the fruit to be good works, good deeds, activity. I mean, just ask somebody. To talk to somebody about, about their relationship with Jesus. And if they begin to define their relationship with Jesus by what they're doing, they've got that idea that this is how I bear fruit. This is how I bear fruit. Now, I'm not, there's nothing wrong with, with that idea. It's just not, what, it's just not deep enough. Jesus would say it's, it's not deep enough. It's more than just doing things. It's something more. These are not necessarily wrong, I just don't believe it's what John meant by using the word fruit. As we're going to proceed further through the text today, we're going to see that. But however, I'm going to stop here just for a second. This line here, the, 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 the vine or the branch that doesn't bear fruit, um, he takes away. It's been interpreted in different ways. A couple of people, some have taken this view to mean that lack of fruit bearing could result in the, a loss of salvation. Therefore, abiding in him has to do with being saved. Um, the, the problem with that is it goes against the rest of the Scripture. So we categorically deny that interpretation. This does not mean that, oh, if you don't bear fruit, then you can lose your salvation. If you're, if you're a Christian and you don't serve somewhere or you're not doing anything, then, then God's going to take that away. That's not what that text says. It's, it's better, as we study the, the language itself, to see this somewhere else. Now, I, I had to bring a prop for this because you know me. I'm, I'm the kind of the prop guy. I, I need some visuals. So I, I brought with me a vine. Um, now, I will confess that this, this vine is not real. Um, this is an A.C. Moore vine. I think that's where my wife bought it. Um, don't, the produce at A.C. Moore is not good. These are the toughest grapes I've ever had. Um, I wouldn't. Thank you. I'll just make sure you're awake. All right, so here we go. So I got a vine here. This is an actual kind of a, a, a replica of a grape vine. Now, to understand what's, being, what's happening here, vines in the first century were normally like laid on the ground. Maybe you have vines at your house. You have kind of a trellis built for them. They kind of follow that. It looks really nice outside. Um, and the, the vines would be on the ground. Now, now, here's the thing. The idea would be 
that this would just grow naturally. But if you were a vine keeper, you, you took very careful um, or took care of your, of your vines. Now, one of the things you would do is you would kind of walk around and making sure that everything was growing. Now, here's what's neat. If you came to a branch like this one here that has no fruit on it, the text seems to say, if you, if you look at it, the, the ESV says takes away, uh, other translation says cut off, but that's not really the Greek word there. The Greek word there for takes away is iro, lift up. So here's what they would do. A vineyard keeper who would see that there's some, a branch that's not really growing some fruit and it's in the dirt like it is, he would say, well, let me fix that. And he would um, get something like a rock and he would set that branch up on a rock so that now the, the branch can now, it has room to bear fruit. Now, now, here's what's neat about that. You ready? If we apply that to what we're talking about, what Jesus is saying here is not, if you don't bear fruit, I'm getting rid of you. But rather, I'm going to put you somewhere where you can bear fruit. You see, that might look different than any, we might have different places where we can bear fruit. We're not all gifted in certain ways, in the same way. You see, this kind of gels with what we're finding in the rest of the Scripture in 1 Corinthians where Paul's talking about how we all have different um, gifts and they're not all the same. So, so here's the idea. Um, some of you have skills that others don't. Some of you said, hey, will you teach? You're already nervous. Like if we said, hey, will you teach in May this month? You're already paranoid right now. You're already thinking about new churches you can visit. Because you, you don't like the idea of getting in front of people. Some of you are like, oh, I'm ready. Can I go now? And you'll be literally nagging us until May, right? You'll be sending your sermons or your lessons to us, and we kind of, yeah, it looks good. Okay, dude, breathe out. It's May. You got five months because you're excited about it because that's where you can bear some fruit. Some of you are not that way. Some of you love working with children. Others are me. I love my kids. I just don't really like yours, all right, you know? So, so, so you like, so, okay, here it is. So, so Pam Scruggs bears fruit there. Rick Clonard, eh, I, I like your kids. I like your kids, don't get me wrong. But if it's like, hey, Rick, will you work in nursery? Ah, is there nobody else? No one? Anybody? Please? Please? Right? It's just not my thing. It's just not my thing. So, so here's the idea. So God puts us where we can bear fruit because he wants us to bear fruit. You get the idea? He's not removing you from the vine. He's putting you somewhere where you can bear fruit. And if I walked around the room today, we could, some of you could attest to this, where you thought you, thought you were going to bear fruit here, but God said, no, i got something better for you. And now that you're over here, you're going, man, God put me up on a rock. I'm bearing fruit here. This is good. I can't imagine being over there because I can't bear fruit there. You understand? That's the idea. Now let's turn back to the attention here of this text. Let's keep going a little bit further. Verse 3. He says, already, I'm sorry, I take it back. Uh, go to verse, uh, the rest of this verse. There's two types of prunings that happen here. Look at this. He says, every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Now, there's two types of prunings we've got to occur in, in vine keeping. There's a spring pruning, and then there's what we call the harvest. The spring pruning is what's talking about here, where the word prune means cleanse. So here's what the, the vine keeper would do. The vine keeper would come over, and he would um, clean off the branches to make sure there's no debris, no dirt that's, that's keeping fruit from happening. 
He's making sure everything's clean. Now here he says this, every, that, every branch that doesn't bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Now go to verse three. Already he says you're clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Now what's being said in that passage? This phrase, already clean, only occurs one other time in the Gospel of John. It's in 13 where we read earlier and Jesus is washing the disciples' feet. Now, this was an illustration I was not going to use today. I did toy with maybe having Pastor Kiva help me with this, but I, I know where he's at on the feet thing, so I decided not to do that. But, but remember the, the foot washing. Now, I, I'm with this situation. I'm Peter in that passage. Jesus shows up, towel and basin, starts washing feet. I'm like, what are you doing? Don't wash my feet. Let me wash yours, right? Now, I try to make that sound like I'm humble, but it's really pride. Maybe you're with me. I'll wash yours, but don't wash mine because that's a pride issue. Peter says, don't wash my feet. I'll wash yours. And Jesus says, remember the text? Jesus says, if you don't wash my feet, let's just walk through it here. Verse four, I'm in John chapter 13 looking at this text. He says, now, by the time of supper, the devil had already put into the heart of Judas, Simon Iscariot's son, to betray him. Jesus knew that the Father had given everything into his hands and that he had come from God and that he was going back to God. So he got up from supper, laid aside his robe, took a towel and tied it around himself. Next, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and dry them with a the towel tied around him. He came to Peter and asked him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I'm doing, you don't understand now, but afterward you'll know. You'll never wash my feet, ever, Peter said. Jesus replied, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. One who's bathed, Jesus told him, doesn't need to wash anything except his feet, but he is completely clean. You are clean, but not all of you. What's going on? For he knew who would betray him. This is why he said, you're not all clean. So he uses that phrase again here in John 15. Why can he say here, now get, get a little nerdy here, why in John 15 can he say, you are all clean, but in John 13 he can say, not all of you are clean? Who was with him in John 13 that wasn't with him in John 15? Judas. He's talking to his disciples here. Jesus is clearly stating something that the Word of God that is what makes a person clean. How does the Word of God make a person clean? Well, Ephesians 5, 25-26 tells us that husbands, it commands us, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. How? He gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the water or the washing of the water of the Word. You see, this cleansing is both the duty of the local church and the responsibility of each member of that church. What does that mean? First, the teacher's are entrusted with the task of correctly teaching the Word of God to this audience. It's our job. The most pastoral thing any of us do all through the week is prepare to preach God's Word to you. That's, can I, he doesn't want to do this, I want to do it. Can I brag on our pastor for a little bit? That's why I love when I come to church here and I come to the office. I, I don't see Pastor Kevin much. He's got his doors locked. Well, they're locked, but they're shut. What's he doing? He's studying. Why is he shutting the door? He doesn't want to disturb. Why does, he, that, why does he want to be disturbed? Because his, that's the most pastoral thing he's doing all week, is digging into the text, wrestling with the text, letting the text teach him so that he can prepare to teach the text to you. I'm thankful for a pastor that shuts his door. You understand? He makes, it, he makes himself available to other people, but he says, no, this is time where I'm going to study God's Word so I can feed the people that God's given me. 
That's what his job is. Second, the audience is entrusted with a responsibility to filter what's taught through Scripture alone, not mere opinion. You should be active listeners, not checking out, not thinking about what lunch is, not thinking, man, I really hope that governor is listening to this. None of that. You're thinking, is, is what Rick's saying true? Let me just filter that through Scripture. Did, did that, does that go with Scripture? See, that's what you're supposed to be doing. And finally, when both are working as they should, the result is correct, undefiled, pure nourishment for all of us. For all of us. You see, this, te- this teaching cleanses us as we submit to it. We listen, we obey, we repent, we encourage others to do the same. That's what this means when we cleanse. Next line, verse 4. He says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him it is he who bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. In this passage, we read that the phrase that's often heard, but, but often less understood, is that word abide in me. What does it mean to abide in Jesus? Now, the, the word there is the Greek word that means to reside, to remain, to live, to make yourself at home there. So um, you were at family this, this Christmas break. You might have been staying at somebody. How many stayed at a family member's house? How many of you guys um, had a room at your family member's house or they just had to make something for you? Who's ever had to have somebody make something for you? Like you had to have a cot near the water heater. You might have had to have that, that beautiful little nugget. All right. So you got a room there, okay? How many felt it? How many guys, when you got home, you could relax? So you're like, oh, I'm at home. I'm, I'm, I'm here. I'm comfortable. Nobody? That's me. When I, I'm away from family, I'm like, like, life is great. But when I get home, life is good. I'm, I'm, I'm going to confess that. I'm in my PJs about like 8 o'clock. Life is good then. Especially now, my wife bought me a, one of those cool PJ robes, and it was all I could do to not wear it here to preach. It was just really good, all right? I'm fighting with it, hanging it in my office and wearing it down here, but we'll see how that goes. But, um, but that's just, you know, I, I, that idea of making yourself at home, to, to dwell, to reside, that's the word there. You're comfortable there. Kenneth Weiss translates this passage this way. He says, he who maintains a living communion with me. He doesn't use the word abide. He says, you maintain a living communion with me, and I in him, or and I with him, this one is bearing much fruit because apart from me, you're not able to do or to be doing anything. You see, abiding carries more weight than just the knowledge of Jesus. I've said it before. I've stole it from somebody else. Some people believe in Jesus like they believe in Abraham Lincoln. He existed. We know he was there. But that's really it. That's not abiding. That's not abiding. That's not making an intimate, living communion. Jesus commands his disciples to abide, to engage in a deep, intimate relationship with him. John, John is later going to write more about this in 1 John chapter um, 1. I'm going to read this for you. It's on the screen. He's going to, he's going to create a, new, a, a word here for you, where in, in John 15, he calls it abiding. He calls it in John 1, or 1 John 1 through 2, the word fellowship. Take a look. He says, now this is the message we've heard from him and declare it to you. God is light and there's no, absolutely no darkness in him. If we say we have fellowship with him, if we're abiding in him, yet we walk in darkness, we are lying and are not practicing the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. 
and the blood of Jesus' Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we don't have any sin, we make Him a liar and His Word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing you these things so you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He Himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not only ours, but for those of the whole world. This is how we are sure that we've come to know Him, by keeping His commands. The one who says, I've come to know Him, yet doesn't keep His commands, is a liar, and the truth is not in Him. But whoever keeps His word, truly in Him the love of God is perfected. This is how we know we're in Him. The one who says He remains in Him, abides in Him, should walk just as He walked. You see, that word John uses in, in, in 1 John 1, fellowship, is a cool word. It's word fellowship means koinonia, or the word, means, the word is koinonia. The word means this. It means we love what he loves. We, we hate what he hates, and we seek his will in all we do. It's a word we can have for humans. We might have friends who we have this fellowship with. You, know, you love what they love. You hate what they hate. You want them around you, everything you do. You, you know that? You like the same things. You think the same way. You might finish each other's sentences. That's the idea here with this word fellowship. You love what Jesus loves. You hate what he hates, and you want what he wants and everything. That's what that word fellowship means. Let's build on that. Let's go a little further. Verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. You see, here we see the idea of judgment for not abiding. Now, before we get into this idea, let's go back to the concept about vine keeping. Remember, I said earlier, there are two types of um, prunings. There's the spring cleaning, and then there's the harvest. This is the harvest he's talking about here. Earlier, he talked about cleaning the vine. Now he's talking about harvesting the vine. You see, the fruit has been brought in, and the vine is purged. Now, the Bible knowledge commentary gives us three options for these words. I'm going to give you all three and tell you where I land. Here's option one. He's, one option is the burned branches are Christians who've lost their salvation. Again, I've already told you I disagree with that. That goes against many teachings of Scripture, specifically in John. I don't believe that's what this text is saying. Okay, then it could be that these branches represent Christians who will lose rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. Now, the problem with that, I don't hold that view either. The problem with that one is Jesus is speaking here of dead branches, such a branch is thrown away and withers. This is, there's no life in this branch. There's no, this is not a Christian. That leaves the other option. Here it is. These burned branches refer to professing Christians like Judas, who are not genuinely saved and therefore judged. See how the context seems to make sense here? Just like he said earlier, hey, I, not all of you are clean, talking about Judas. And now he says, look, a branch that, that says it's in me but doesn't bear fruit, it's not really in me. It's not really in me. Because if you're in me, you're going to bear fruit because I'm going to put you somewhere that you can bear fruit. You get the idea? Like, well, what is this fruit again? What are we talking about with this idea of the fruit? Look at verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, it will be done for you. If our relationship with Jesus is on this deeper, intimate level, we're going to love what he loves. We're going to hate what he hates. We're going to seek his will in all we do. Therefore, our requests of him are going to be more free from selfish desires. They're grounded in his desires. His desires become our desires. His will becomes our will. His will is always going to be accomplished. 
You see what that text is saying? As I submit to him, as I abide in him, as I have that deep relationship with him, he's going to change my will into his will. So whenever I ask, he's going, to, he's going to provide it because it's his will. What he's talking about here is not you get me to do anything. This is not talking about if you'll pray, you let me pray, I'm going to accomplish much. But rather, I'm going to change your focus. I'm going to get you where I'm going to be. You're not getting me where you want me to be. I think that's sometimes how I pray. I want God to do what I want him to do. But that's not what he says here. He's saying, no, no, you're not going to pray and get me to do what you want me to do, but rather through you abiding in me and having that fellowship with me where you love what I love and hate what I hate and seek my will and everything, it's going to change your heart where you're going to be naturally wanting what I want to do already. You see the idea? This is not talking about getting God to act on your behalf, but rather getting God to reorient your heart in his rhythm, not your own. You see, we go a little further. Let's sum up a little bit here. Now, I'm going to read the next line. We'll sum up. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. Now, summing up what we've looked at so far, we've been commanded to abide in him. This abiding is going to bear much fruit. Not that we're doing it. Who's doing it through us? Jesus is doing all the fruit. This fruit, as we looked at John 13, is our love for one another. This love proves that we are his disciples, and this love proves the reality of Jesus. Now look at the next line. He says, as the Father loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. What does it mean to abide in his love? He answers it in the next few passages. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you, that your joy may be full. This is my commandment. So here he is. He's already said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And here's the commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. You see it? See how he's built up to this argument? He's, he's, he's kind of wet your appetite all through the text. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If you abide in me, you'll keep my commandments. And we're asking, well, what's the command? Here it is. Love one another just like I loved you. Love one another. Notice what it's not. The commandment is not doing the right thing. It's not it's not, not drinking smoking or chewing or hanging out with girls that do, that kind of line. It's not that. It's not an activity that you keep yourself from. It's not an activity that you engage in, but rather it's a, it's a life of loving one another. Like, well, okay, what, then what does that mean? Because we use that word love all the time today, and love can be interpreted in different ways. Let Jesus define it for us. He says, love one another. How? As I have loved you. Well, what's Jesus' love like? You see, the context of this passage seems to indicate that to abide in his love is to possess the same love he has for other believers. So what's that love like? I want to know. Here's what it looks like. Number one, it's sacrificial. You see, Christ's death was not an accident. It was God's predetermined plan before the creation of the world to save mankind from the penalty that was due for, their sinful, for our sinful rebellion to him. Paul's letter to the Philippians tells us that Christ gave up his rights as God and humbled himself to the point of death on the cross for our sins. Likewise, we are commanded to give up our own perceived rights and privileges for the sake of what is best for one another. Now, do this with me real quick. Look beside you. Look behind you. Look in front of you. That's your one another. 
right side sanctuary. Introduce yourself to the left side of the sanctuary. See them over here? You see them? That's your one another. That's it. So I'm supposed to love you guys this way. All right, what does that look like? Friends, this may mean giving up what you want in order that others have what they need. Notice what I said. You give up what you want so that others can have what they need. Our desires for one another have to take a back seat. I'm sorry, our desires for ourselves have to take a back seat to the needs of one another. It may mean giving up some time. It may mean giving up some finances. It may mean just giving up some, your own preconceived notions and your own things that you have. But saying, look, it's for you. It's whatever you need, whatever I can help you with. And we have to figure out what that is. Some of us, it's easier for us to give up money than it is our time. Like we use the phrase, throw money at the problem. Oh, somebody's, oh, let's just throw money. No, no, maybe somebody needs your time. They need you. Be willing to do that. Now, you might be thinking, well, but, but there's a lot of needs. I can't be everybody's person here. Yeah, but if we're all doing this, there's not a big need because people's needs are being met. But, but are you doing what you need to do to help fill somebody's need? Next, it's beneficial. What does that mean? Benefit means to the good of someone else. In, verse, in Ephesians chapter 5, we read, as we read earlier, verse 26 says that Christ's love for the church was meant for the purpose of sanctifying it, which means to make the church holy or more like himself. The sanctifying love, I'm sorry, the sanctifying of the church will continue until Christ calls us home to be with him. So too, our love for one another is to be for the good or the benefit of each other. Friends, we're commanded to love one another in such a way that we're more like Christ for having known one another than we would have ever been if we'd have never met. And we use this phrase a lot here all the time. The gospel unites us. And if you look around and think, I'm, I'm looking at some of you guys now, I don't know if we'd hang out if Jesus wasn't real. We don't have similar likes, do we? We don't have, I mean, we have similar interests. I mean, we don't have similar interests. We may not hang out if Jesus isn't real. But because Jesus is real, we're here right now. Now think about this for a second. It's not an accident that we're here together. God put us together as a church. Are we being good members of this body? How do you, how do you test that? Is that person who sits near me normally or I spend time with regularly, are they more like Jesus because I'm here? Now, if you, if you ever want to ask the question, are you a good member or a bad member? Like we use phrases around here like member in good standing and all that. Here's what that looks like. Good members are benefiting each other. We're, we're helping each other more like Jesus. Bad members, you're draining. Good members, life preservers, keeping you afloat. Bad members, anchors, right? It's bringing you down. So what do we want? We want to change hearts and work on that. Therefore, our love must be an active love, which purposefully has each other's holiness and Christ-likeness as the goal. It's not what you do for me. It's what can I do for you? How can I help you be more and more and more like Jesus? Husbands, this isn't new to you because you're hopefully doing this with your wife, right? You're, you're supposed to 
help her in her holiness. Wives, you're supposed to help your husbands in their holiness. Parents, you're helping your kids in holiness. All we're asking you to do, extend the boundary. Church members, are we helping each other in holiness? Are we helping each other in Christ's likeness? Are we using our words for encouragement more than criticism? Finally, this love is eternal in focus. The purpose of Christ's love, go back to the last slide, guys. The purpose of Christ's love for his church is that the church may be one day presented before him in splendor and holiness. The cross which Christ endured for our sin had eternity in the backdrop. Christ wrote to the Galatians that Paul, I'm sorry, Paul wrote to the Galatians that Christ endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. All right, beloved, our love for one another must have eternity in the backdrop. Our love for one another should declare to the world that we understand this world is temporary. Our attitudes, our actions toward one another should openly confess that we understand there's a coming kingdom that we're a part of. Together, as a church, as we refuse to live for all this world can offer, we will become a curiosity to others. People will think, what's going on at Salem? They will wonder at our peace as we endure trials. They will be amazed at our hope in the midst of suffering. And they'll be perplexed as to what drives us to love one another, even when we, let's be honest, are unlovable. The world outside is going to go, what's going on at Salem? They love one another. Beloved, this is the kind of love that Jesus displayed. This is the kind of love that is the mark of the true Christian. Verse 14, he says, you're my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. I've called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You see, it's interesting too here that we see that, that Jesus links friendship with his teaching. He says, if you do what I say, we're friends. In other words, in the mind of Jesus, following correct teaching brings people into deep intimacy with one another. Belief really brings us together, doesn't it? You believe the same thing? Here's how I prove this. Go to a Carolina game if you're a Duke fan and look for the other Duke fan. Right? I don't know this guy, but I'm like, if this, if this goes bad, it's me and him against the world. Right? It's me and him. Because you have a kindred, there's something you believe together. You believe that that team is the best team. No matter if you're, whatever color blue you're surrounded by, you believe that team is the best team. And there's a, there's a kindred thing here. I have this thing where my wife and kids, they kind of, I think my kids think it's cute. My wife thinks it's kind of weird. Where anytime I see a guy wearing a Cubs jersey, outfit, hat, T-shirt, I always go talk to him because there's not many of us. We stick together, all right? There's a, there's a, there's a camaraderie. I may not even get to know that guy's name, but I def, definitely know that this is our year again, okay? That brings us together. Something about the gospel does the same thing, guys. It brings us together. The gospel brings all types of people together. Again, like we said, you might be sitting around someone right now that you would never sit beside if the gospel weren't true. If Jesus isn't real, you may never be sitting beside that person. Look at verse 16. He says, you didn't choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you'll love one another. Here Jesus ends with an emphatic point that all this love stuff can't come naturally. It can't. Because human love is always limited. Have you noticed that? Our human love for one another is limited. What's it limited by? It could be by attraction. You know, 
could be by attraction. Just that person looks a certain way. So like if it's, if it's, a, if it's a, a romantic relationship, because they look that way, that drew you to them. And that was all the relationship was built on. It might be in a friendship, like, well, that person looks normal, so I'm going to hang out with them rather than this person who looks a little abnormal. It could be by preference. Our human love is based on preference. We like the same things. We prefer the same things. It could be by a shared interest, like with preferences. It could be just by receiving uh, in return. You love them, so they love you back, or you love them because they love you back. You're getting something out of it. You see, any chance of this love being seen in our church is only through the sovereign work of Christ, not things we can bring to the table. Because if we divvied up right now, we'd find a couple clicks. You understand? We, we like certain things, so we hang out together. Again, using teams. The Duke fans would be over here. Carolina would be over here, and they'd be yelling. Then you got guys like me, you're in the middle. We just don't care. We like to see both of you guys fight. All right? So I just watch the Carolina-Duke games just to see who's going to get mad next week. Um, and so we'd, we'd have different groups. We'd have hunters at one place. We'd have book nerds like me in one place. We'd have musicians in one place. We, we might break up into those little groups. We might break up into age. we break up. We see the gospel unites us together like nothing else. As we conclude our time together this morning, I want to point out a few things with special emphasis. Now I want to go back to the words of Barclay that I used earlier. Barclay said this, it's as if Jesus said, you think you belong to the nation of Israel. Remember that text. Because you're a branch of Israel. But the nation is a degenerate vine. All of your prophets saw is I whom the true vine. He adds this line at the very end. Jesus was laying it down that not Jewish blood, but faith in him was the way to God's salvation. No external qualification can set us right with God. Only friendship of Jesus Christ can do that. Friend, there's nothing that must be done or can be done that can make you right with God. No activity, no work, no charitable work, no goodness that you think you have, not even work in the church. Only this, what um, Kenneth Weeks would say, this living communion with Christ through faith in his sacrificial death and resurrection can make you right with God. You may be here this morning, and you're already in a living communion with this God. You already, you already have that relationship with Him. But let me ask you a question. Are you a part of a local, a local assembly, a local church, where you're able to practice these very commands? Have you chosen to align yourself with a local church that, you can, that shows you can love one another, that, may, that you can prove that you're a true disciple of Christ? It could be this church or it could be another church. We're not in competition with other churches. We love other churches. And we're praying for those pastors. We pray for their pastors regularly. So we, we're like getting you plugged into a local church. But here is where we can show the love we have. You see, I'm not saying that if you're not a part of a local church that you're not a believer in Christ. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is that if you're not willing to join with other believers in order to practice this love for one another, how will anyone know that you do believe? How, do we, how does anyone know? Because Jesus says, here's how I'm going to, people are going to know you're my disciple. You love one another. But if you're not around one another's, how do people know? Schaefer explains it this way. The point is that it is possible to be a Christian without showing the mark. But if we expect non-Christians to know that we're Christians, we must show the mark. When we love other believers in Christ, we put feet to what we say we believe. 
member of Salem. No matter how long you've been here, whether it's been a couple, this year or years, Schaefer adds to you, the church is to be a loving church in a dying culture. Let me read that again. The church is to be a loving church in a dying culture. How then is the dying culture going to consider us? Jesus says, by this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if you have love one to another. In the midst of the world, in the midst of our present dying culture, Schaefer says, Jesus gives us a, gives a right to the world. Upon his authority, he gives the world the right to judge whether you and I are born again on the basis of our observable love toward all Christians. You see, brothers and sisters, Salem Baptist Church members, how intentional are we in our love for one another and others outside our doors? Are we looking for opportunities to love one another sacrificially, beneficially, and with eternity in focus? Will we, in 2019, deliberately and consistently demonstrate this love that's supposed to set us apart from the world? Are we going to seek to love one another sacrificially, beneficially, and with eternity in focus so that we can prove to the world that we belong to Jesus? Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. And again, I want to pray that if I've said anything today that's just my opinion, let that be forever forgotten. But Lord, let the truths of your word be what's remembered. May it change us. Lord, I've looked at this text and I confess I don't love this way. My love is tainted by my human sinfulness of what I can get out of it or a shared interest or a preference. Father, I pray for your forgiveness for that sin. That's what it is, Lord. I've chosen my own way of love more than what your son has said. And I pray the same for my friends who may have done the same thing in this building today where we've loved based on what we get out of it, not on what your son commands us to do, to love sacrificially, beneficially, and with eternity in focus. Father, it's my prayer that hearts will be mended during this time. We've prayed earlier about hearts being hurt through the loss of a loved one, but Lord, we, we also, in this church this year, we've hurt one another. Member has hurt member. It may have been intentional, it may have been unintentional, but God, it's, been, it's done, I'm sure of it. God, right now, will you work in hearts at the beginning of this new year? I pray that if we have wronged another person in this building, that we would not rest until we repent and seek forgiveness. Where we have been wronged, may we, may we forgive. Even before the person comes to us, God, please don't let us start 2019 with the same garbage in our hearts that we have right now. We're, looking, we're excited about 2019, what God's going to do through this church, but Lord, you're going to clean the branch so they can bear fruit. We know your son, but will you clean us with confession of sin and restoration of relationships? Lord, I pray that you would work 
in Salem in 2019 in a way that no one in the history of this church has ever seen before. So that years from now, our grandchildren will look back and go, those were big days at Salem because of their love for one another. May we pass that legacy on to the future of this church. God, I pray for anybody who is here today who does not know your son as Savior. They're trusting in something else, some kind of work or activity or whatever it is to, to be right with you. God, I pray that they would see clearly that it's only through the love that you showed us through the, through the sacrificial death of your son on the cross, through faith in him, belief in him, what makes us right with you. Lord, now we com- I commit this, this lesson to you, this sermon to you, Lord. May your spirit work in our hearts any way he wants but may you receive all the glory in Jesus' great name. Amen. Love you guys. Thank you. By this they may know that you are my disciples, that you have love one for another. Guys, let's strive to have love for one another. Thank you, Pastor Rick. I'll tell you about a couple of things real quick, and then we'll be dismissed. Number one, these Christmas decorations are beautiful, aren't they? But how many of you have your Christmas decorations down in your house already? Mine are coming down in the next day or so, okay? Um, we need some help tonight at 5 o'clock taking down Christmas decorations here. And so if you're able to help, please come. Be here at 5 o'clock tonight to assist in that. There are no other evening activities this evening. Um, so come and, and do that if you can. Uh, this Wednesday, things pick back up with our regular scheduling, regularly scheduled activities. So Wednesday night, 6.30. Hey, let me tell you about one thing real quick, and then uh, we'll sing a chorus and be dismissed. Next Sunday, when you come into the auditorium, you're going to receive a little notebook. It looks just like this. On the front, it says, Our Story, His Story. And that's the, the, uh, the topic the, of the sermon series for all of 2019. And really, this is what we're immersing ourselves in um, as a church for 2019. Understanding God's story as told by His Word and then how we fit into God's story. So we're actually going to start in Genesis, and we're going to go all the way through Revelation to kind of gain an overall comprehensive view of God's story. So um, I'm going to tell you more about this notebook when you come in next week, but look for this when you come in, and we'll give you instructions after that. Hey, would you stand? We're going to sing the chorus to All Glory Be to Christ. Have a great new year. You are sent.